right. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Geology on the Rocks, your one-stop audio shop for all things rocks and rocking out. A brief overview of this evening's episode will include our intros and hellos, followed by new news. I remain discussion. <laughs> <laughs> I walked up the stairs really fast and I'm still out of breath. <laughs> so our main discussion we'll be discussing tonight is going to deal with coastal erosion and estuaries with our special guest, Dr. Angela Osen. Between the bars of our main discussion, we present to you another Mineral Minute. And before signing off, we'll close things out with That Freaking Rocks. A big thank you to all of our listeners out there for allowing us to be played between your earballs, both to our new listeners and to our real return. <laughs> I'm already starting, Brian. <laughs> and to our returning listeners alike and for spending your time with us each week. If you would like to reach out to us, reach out to us, whether it be for episode ideas, answers, or you wanting answers. <laughs> If you fancy being a guest or just to tell us about all the times that we have misspoke, you can reach us at geologyotr at gmail.com or you can find us on our Instagram page at Geology on the Rocks podcast. So it looks like things are squared away over here. Without further ado, to all of you over there, I am your host, James the Geologist. And I'm Brian Baggins. And this is Geology, Geology on, on the, the Rocks. rocks. <laughs> hey, man. So you see the difference. We can say it whenever yeah. we can see each other. <laughs> well, let's do this. Let me go ahead and introduce to all of y'all out there our guest this week. She's our, our returning guest. So if you've stuck with us from the beginning, you know who she is. But if not, we have with us on the line today, Dr. Angela Osen. Where's the music? No, where's the... Oh, Lord. Uh-oh. Where is it at? Yeah. Yay! I'll edit that out. <laughs> All right. How are you? I'm doing fine. Staying warm today, so this is nice. Oh, it has yeah. been nice. A brief overview of Angela's credentials. So she has her bachelor's in geology. She also has her PhD in geology from the University of Texas at Arlington. Her dissertation was over atmospheric and ocean conditions that led up to the Permian-Triassic extinction events. She's a current professor at TCC. Is it six years? I know when we had you on you it said five and a half years so i'm assuming it's six years now <laughs> yep six years now <laughs> yeah and then she's also she uh volunteered at the arkansas site in arlington for 10 years and then she currently or i don't know currently but she has had experience prepping fossils at the herd museum we've been shut down during during covid but so when we get yeah. back so no no update from the last time yeah yeah so you mentioned oh yeah so how did everyone uh fare the past week here in good old uh winter wonderland texas well we've all thought out i guess maybe yeah <laughs> angela how was your like did you lose power water all that stuff we did we lost power um in stance. i think the longest one was a little over 12 hours followed by another eight or hours or so um, we never lost water and we didn't endure any damage, so we were under a boil order for a while, but that's been lifted. So I really count us as one of the lucky ones. And you were um, you were pretty lucky too as well, yeah, right, I was Brian? pretty much in that same boat, not quite as long without power. We didn't get a formal boil notice, but we still did that just in case. We were you were probably like, under it. Yeah, I was like, they didn't say that, but uh, I'm not going to risk. So I guess then I was, I was the oddball out. I, I don't know if it's because where I'm at and just the grid that we're on, but yeah. so Tuesday about 11 a.m., uh, just the power went out and we're just like, dang it. 
Dang it, dang it, dang it, dang it. So then we were like, okay, well, maybe it's this rolling blackout. We didn't know. We didn't have any idea. There was no real transparency to any of it. And then after, you know, it got pretty cold in the house and like yelling at the kids, being like, quit opening the door all day. Like like, uh, we were playing Uno in the living room with the lights and all of a sudden the power came back on for about one minute. And then there it was. It didn't come back on until Thursday like night. Right. I don't know when it was, so, but we were, we were without power for a little over, I guess, um, I guess it was about three days, but yeah, like, and then the, the water started not flowing because I don't know, <laughs> it just was, it was bad news with kids and all that. So that's awful. And you, you said the temp, like when it came back on was really abysmal. <laughs> yeah, no. So when I turned, whenever the power finally did come back on, I just, I ran over there cause I was like, how cold? Cause it was really cold. Like I had five sweatshirts on, I had four pairs of pants on two beanies, like two socks and like shoes inside the house. And I'm still cold. I'm like under the blankets <laughs> turned on. And when it turned on, it was 42 degrees in our house. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah it's it. So I, I felt real bad for my cats cause we left them here and we took the dog with us and <laughs> got to shower at my parents' house. And we stayed at Angela's sister's uh, house to like uh, stay but yeah that was it was not very much fun and I, I I feel like the worst part about it I don't know if it was for you guys and I'll take your take on it like it was just like the not knowing there was no real like transparency because they said rolling blackouts and then you started you'd get online depending on who your friends were like like yeah. I guess the algorithms at work is like it's one thing and then you look somewhere else it's another thing and it's just not really yeah not good. one of my son Dallas and he didn't lose power ever at all and you know our neighborhood was kind of like a bubble everyone around us was actually out of power for like three days so you're right there was no transparency there wasn't any rhyme and reason they're like oh well there's going to be rolling blackouts and but once we finally got power on it stayed on for us but yet I had friends that lived around us that still hadn't gotten power yet so and then what I was going to say is like, I think it's a, uh, yeah. Cause my parents, they, they never, they never lost power and her sister didn't lose power. And I don't know if it's the, the grid that they're on. Cause I think they're each apart on a grid that had to do with something with the, I guess, hospitals were being in the same grid as like some kind of essential business that needed to be open. True. Yeah. My parents live close to a hospital and they lost power. I think for like maybe an hour during this whole thing. That's it. And so. I hate, yeah. I hate to be one of those people that are, they're like $10,000 electric bills now. Like, have you seen those? Uh-uh. Yeah. Like it's bad. It's well, really I feel bad. like that's, I don't know. And then, you know, I, I felt like this was a, I don't know, a, a real dark time. Like, cause we had like a, <laughs> we had lion Ted, but we call him flying Ted now. Like he went to, <laughs> yeah. like he went to Mexico. Right. So he was like, <laughs> peace out yeah it's like uh like and then yeah. but then you had all these like oil gas energy people being like see this is why renewables are not good and we're like, well, like what you're the like, main but like <laughs> but the oil and gas was like the reason why like a lot of it yeah, yeah so exactly. i don't know it made me mad seeing all like the it was a time just to like they're like oh thanks a lot obama but oh, they're god. like this is yeah. biden's fault oh, yeah <laughs> oh god i don't know it's just crazy it's it's just, you know, it's like we should have been prepared, but nobody bothered to invest in winterizing, even yeah. though we've had the storms every 10 years, we get hammered. So what's the deal? Yeah. So like, I mean, it didn't like, uh, so in 2017, like whenever the, the Super Bowl was here in the Dallas Fort Worth area, like the, we had that major ice storm. Yeah. I, mean, I don't, I didn't lose power, but I know yeah. like, didn't they have like special commissions being like, yeah, you should probably like update the grid and winterize <laughs> your stuff. And they're, and they were like, oh, well, I think Abbott 
and uh, who was the one? Rick Perry before Rick Perry, him. Yeah. They made a special commission, like a like a group of people to do this oversight committee to like fine people. And I think it, <laughs> they came up with like twenty five thousand dollars worth of fines to the the people for not being updated. Yeah, <laughs> which is like twenty five thousand dollars in oil and gas. Well, and Rick Perry was like, Texans are okay with having their power off to just not have federalize. Yeah, the, I don't, I don't, like, I, don't I don't think so, dude. <laughs> I don't like, like we've never, I've never have never experienced anything like that. No. And plus like the cold here in Texas, it was minus, what was the, did y'all see it? it was like minus two was like the lowest it got yeah, in some I mean, places. Ugh. Yeah. My weather station said negative two was the lowest it got. So and that's just That blows my mind here in Texas. And then today, like, so that was what, Wednesday morning or Tuesday. Anyways, the low on Tuesday was that minus two. Here it is on Saturday. I was in, or Sunday, I was in shorts and t-shirts today because yeah, it was 75 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> so nice. Uh, well, that's, I guess, uh, so it's, that's cold enough. So shall we get on to a little new news? Yeah. New yeah. news. I'll start off. So okay. I found an article and it was... Basically, they found that there was a magnetic field reversal 42,000 years ago, and they are now, like, after looking at some other evidence, it may have contributed to mass extinctions. Yeah, and I think, like, this is, I think, the first time that we've all, like, we've reread this. <laughs> like, like yeah. So we're like, yeah, so that, that would, it has to do with that tree in New Zealand, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they what they did is they were able to look and see that at about, like, it was like 41,000 years ago, they started noticing a lot of, an, a big uptick. They did cross-sections in the tree, and they yeah. saw really elevated carbon-14 because because carbon-14 will come in through the atmosphere, right? Yeah. And so elevated, it started elevating quite a bit, and they then were able to, they realized that there was a magnetic shift at that time, but they also noticed that a lot of the megafauna, like woolly mammoths, a huge wombat, (laughs) they all died off at this time, and um, they're starting to put all the pieces together that, hey, maybe magnetic reversals also play a really key role in mass extinction. Yeah, and I think think that's interesting, because like, uh, I guess, recent written history, we really haven't experienced anything like that, that I'm I'm aware of, (laughs) maybe, but no, no. They would have noticed that. Didn't you were saying something, right, Angela, about the hand paintings, like or the the cave art? Yeah, they they had noticed the, an uptick in the cave art during that time, and I think Brian was saying something about they were also using something as sunscreen. So everything yeah. you know around knew something was going on. We're able to put that together. So I, I find that absolutely fascinating. But you know, kind of related, unrelated, as unprepared as Texas was for cold weather, what the heck we're going to do if we do incur a magnetic switch. No, so like, I think uh, it, it promptly after this, I joined a, a doomsday, not doomsday, but like one of those prepper website, like uh, <laughs> Facebook groups <laughs> on yeah, how to yeah. properly prep. But yeah, no, like, I, I, I guess that's something that I, we, that we just don't know, right? Like the, how the atmosphere, because I guess in that study, from what I read, right, is like the, could you imagine like when, because so the, the magnetic field, right? kind of weakens and then imagine if there was a solar flare at that time oh, yeah like it, yeah you don't have anything like ozone and then the magnetic field weakens like i think they realized the magnetic field was about 20 something percent what it is today just generally at that time but during leading up to that reversal it dropped down to six percent of what it is today so Ooh. it got really hot like a lot more sun exposure more direct so what was it that there there's an absolutely terrible movie in the 2000s where they were talking it's like where the the earth stopped spinning and they were geologists <laughs> Like, I, I know what you're you talking, know what I'm talking about, about yeah. but there's it reminds me of that. 
It reminds me of that. Didn't UTA used to like have bad geology movie night or whatever? Oh, I remember those. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, amazing. But yeah, so they now they're starting to look at, you know, other mass extinction events. There was one like the Mono Lake excursion that occurred 34,000 years ago. And then also there was a 20,000 year long reversal event. And that was about 780,000 years ago. And so they're like, hey, we need to go back, relook at things and just put this in and see if this is something that could have attributed. Yeah, they, with could the just, other factors. they could at least update their models, right? Right, like, yeah. Because like before you would think of like massive volcanism or whatever. <laughs> yeah, which definitely, but I mean, then add a reversal on or yeah. it triggers that. I don't know. I think Angela was saying earlier, but yeah. So that's my news well, story. Well, oh, I, and I find that fascinating, but yeah, you know, you mentioned the weakening of the magnetic fields and solar flares. I mean, talking about the electrical grid again. Yeah, yeah those, <laughs> a large enough solar flare could take out our electrical grid right now. I mean, worldwide. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the chance of that happening is really, really slim because our magnetic field is strong, but... Yeah. <laughs> Bad time for Texas to secede. <laughs> mm, mm. So uh, did you, did you want, did you have a story, Angela, or do you just want us to keep going? Uh, no, go ahead and keep going. Okay. Well then yeah. I bring to the table, uh, speaking of the, the zeros, right? So we had a zero degree temperature day. So it got me thinking about what is absolute zero? So we know science is really full of these zeros, but what is zero or absolute zero? So light has really has a zero mass. When we think about it, neutrons have a zero charge. A mathematical point has zero length. So those zeros might be unfamiliar, but they follow a consistent type of logic, if you will. So all represent the absence of a certain quality, right? Such as your mass, your electric charge, or distance. Then there's the puzzling case of absolute zero. So we tend to think of hot and cold as relative things, right? When we think of like this beer that I'm drinking, it's pretty cold or a cup of our old tea, for example, is colder than the fire on the stove that you made it, but hotter than the ice cube, right? So absolute zero represents really the coldest possible temperature, if you will. So which defies the this versus that pattern. And then stranger still absolute zero isn't even zero <laughs> on the temperature <laughs> scales used by non-scientists. So it's really this this temperature that we think of as minus 273, 273.15 degrees on the Celsius scale or minus 459 degrees, 0.67 degrees Fahrenheit. I think I said that <laughs> degrees, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. But anyways, so think of it a game as atomic dodgeball, if you will. So when the ball hits you, you feel its energy. And then what's happening is that there are about trillions and trillions of those dodgeballs hitting at all at the same time and on an invisibly small scale. And that's what we perceive as temperature. So this real fast moving atoms hit hard, which they feel high temperature when a hot object touches a cold object, the, the faster, hotter atoms impart some of that velocity to the slower ones. And then the colder ones, the anyways, hot or heat moves from like hot to cold. Yeah. So that's, that's the way that, that, that it goes. Right. So then cool objects grow warmer, if you will. Right. So then in 1848, the Scottish-Irish physicist William Thompson, better known as Lord Kelvin, extended on this scientist who previously did work on it, Amontons, Amontons, I don't know how you say his name, developing on what he called absolute temperature scales that would apply to all substances. And he set this absolute zero on his scale, uh, getting rid of the unwieldy negative numbers, like, right? So just <laughs> even like uh, going from Celsius to Fahrenheit is kind of, you can see that, right? So it's zero degrees Celsius, but it's 32 degrees Fahrenheit. 
Fahrenheit. So if it was yeah. zero degrees Fahrenheit, it would have to be negative something Celsius. So the, the Kelvin kind of got rid of all of that. Okay, anyways, so he set absolute zero as zero on his scale, getting rid of all the, the negative numbers. So now we rely on the Kelvin scale for temperature measurements. And then when we think of space, right? So space is really cold and the average temperature of space is actually 2.74 Kelvin or minus 454.7 degrees Fahrenheit, which is pretty cold. It's pretty, yeah. <laughs> it's what it's what my house felt like on <laughs> Thursday. Yeah. So surprisingly, some celestial objects are colder than empty space, believe it or not. So an expanding cloud of gas called the Boomerang Nebula behaves much like an interstellar refrigerator and with a temperature of about one degree Kelvin, right? I, I, I miss speaking. You don't say degree when you say Kelvin. So yeah. <laughs> every time I say that, I'm like, it's one Kelvin, 2.74 Kelvin. There's not degrees. All right. Just so I got that out of the way. I don't have to do it in our, uh, someone our, will write us. Anyway. Yeah. In our, in our triple junction and people yeah. will be like, it's not degrees Kelvin. <laughs> so, okay. With a temperature of one Kelvin, it's the coldest naturally occurring location in the cosmos, but humans, we decided that we we're going to take it a little bit step further, right? So we've gone colder than that here on earth in 2003 researchers at MIT used laser beams to slow sodium atoms, cooling them to one half of one billionth of a degree above absolute zero. So, you know, that that's still, that was the world record in Texas until Texas 2021 when hell froze over. So, <laughs> <Burr>. <laughs> so we set the record here in 2021 was the, wow. but God dang, one half of one billionth of a degree to absolute zero. And, and then they, they, they yeah. used lasers to slow sodium. It's like <laughs> freaking laser. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Incredible. Yeah. So on to episode 21, we go and we titled this one just arbitrarily Mary, Larry and the estuary. And there's no, well, I guess, I guess there, there was, a rhyme. There, <laughs> I wrote, there's no rhyme, but there it's, I guess it was for rhyme is the reason other than it just felt right. So, and again, so we're excited to have Dr. Osen on with us just to, we'll, we'll kind of navigate the, the waters. So, yeah. and the, what we're going to talk about today is really just mainly have a conversation about coastal and marine erosion and then a little bit of estuary talk. So we don't have to get, we can get as, as detailed or as not as detailed as we wanted to, but I figured it's kind of, we're still kind of trying to follow you around, uh, Brian, in kind of these <laughs> depositional environments and these different uh, kind of funny things that might help you along with yeah. your, so any, any update on your, on your stuff? Uh, yeah, I found some minerals, some, a heavy mineral suite okay. that's uh, showing up in all the samples. That's so, pretty sweet. Yeah. And these minerals should be absent from the formations that would be the other possible provenance. Okay. So I'm starting to narrow down like olivine, which not very stable, right? Yeah. It's starting to show up quite a bit and topaz. Oh yeah. So topaz, those really are coming from these, what I think is probably these topaz bearing rhyolites in the Northrop area of Colorado. <laughs> Pretty cool stuff. Learning a lot about Colorado. Right I have now. no idea. Do you know where that's at, Angela? <laughs> I do not. I'm uh, not familiar with that. Sounds interesting. Yeah, it's like the uh, central Colorado volcanic field. And so they had like, it was like real... Um they had some bimodal volcanisms like pre-Rio Grande. And then, uh, oh, wow. yeah, and then it started to shift more towards the rhyolitic magma and had a lot of explosive like tufts and all that kind of stuff. So, but, so, but there's olivine in the rhyolites? In the basalts. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's a few little wow. basalt flows in the area and this river actually cuts right through that. Okay. Whereas the other one is all... Um, 
like second, third cycle sedimentary units. So is that, no, we uploaded that one, right? I the think sandstone? so. No, cause yeah, we talked about conglomerates and shells last yeah, time. Yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. No, so like even just, I know in, in, it, we just had an episode on it and I'm still like sandstones. Why do they have <laughs> olivine in them? <laughs> yeah. But the, yeah. And so they, and they, they don't. And so that's my clue is like olivine's showing up in the quaternary, like the really recent okay. stuff, like probably less than 10,000 years old. We don't know yet. We have to date it, but since it's yeah. there, I don't expect it to come from an early Cretaceous sandstone that's undergone like all sorts of maturation. And so, yeah. Oh. Right. Yeah, fun stuff. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> Every time I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> it's okay. On this episode, I'm going to be like, yep, but I don't know. <laughs> All yeah. right, so coastal and marine erosion. Okay, so what? Anybody want to? Do we want to start off? I mean, we should say maybe we should define what a coast is and like what the coastal landforms would be. Yeah, just I so that the spices, listeners. Right? Yeah, so I'll say that a coast is an area lying at like the interface of land or a large water body. So that you think of coast, you think of like sea, ocean, but like what we, we're going to talk about in a little while is it could also be at a, a large lake. So they're typically like zones of shallow water and usually like they either a, waves are able to move the sediment and as well as on the landward side, you'll have beaches, cliffs, coastal dunes. They're all affected directly or indirectly by waves, tides, and currents. The landward side of this coastal environment can extend for miles and miles in, inside inland. But so I'll kind of finish up this by saying like they, the factors that influence it can be wave energy, tidal range, sediment supply, what the materials are, and then your continental shelf slope and width, and then whatever the geologic history of the region is. I agree. Do you, do you agree? <laughs> oh, I, I, I agree hundred percent, but we also should add, you know, there's also human factors that are going to affect the coast. As well. Oh yeah. So, yeah. That's, that's a big one these days as well, but yeah, as far as natural. <laughs> yeah. Right like on. I remember in sedimentology, like it was like, Hey, uh, this particular municipality tried to limit coastal erosion on this one part here's what happened afterwards what would you do to fix their mistake yeah <laughs> all those it's it's i feel like it's a lot of the questions that i give the students now and they and they yeah. think they're think pair shares i'm like how would you how would you fix this problem right here yeah so yeah like um whenever so i always like to because i i guess you know i we've had this conversation too before angela like uh this idea like oceanography it's it's opened my eyes to a lot of things that i was never previously like i always thought the you know like a beach like the coast was the beach like it's all one thing like it's not and it, it's and it's and it's oh yeah like like I, that's that's all i mean that's the coast the beach it was just all that 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 tiny little that spot that i walk on like that kind of kind of gets wet and then you know i stick my feet in up until i had no idea the the all of it that goes into it and it's and it's basically when it comes to this coastal erosion right it's it's this interface that's that they're interacting right so the coast goes up to a point and then you have the beach right so then what i'm what i think the beach is is actually called the shore like right and then you have the near shore and then the offshore and then i think i'm for sure uh, when it comes to all of that <laughs> like right so it, it it blows my mind just all of the the interactions that goes into all of it I guess is what, what I'm saying. Change too. So, you know, you can have a different shoreline, how it looks in the summer. You know, you, you have the, the, the picturesque beach where you have all the sand and, and people are soaking in the sun, but in the wintertime, that beach is completely gone and all you have is rugged boulders. 
but oh, so, sometimes that so, sand comes back. Now so. is it, yeah, is that so? That's the difference between like the uh, the what is it? The summer and winter beaches. It's like with yeah. the with the storms that come in, and that has to do with the does. Is it is that is that where it's changing out in the uh, I guess in the you know where the breakers are and like all that the storm. What am I trying to say, Angela? Yeah, it just changes the wave activity. So and it, it's driven by the season. So fall and winter, we tend to have, you know, stronger weather patterns that come in. So that develops stronger waves and all that sand gets taken out farther out to the ocean. So we have that buildup of what's called the, the longshore bar. Mm. And then summertime, the wave action is quieter and so that so all the sediments that were dragged out farther out to sea get pushed back into the shore and they build up this nice shoreline. As a matter of fact, my parents, you know, before all this COVID hit, they, they like to go to Hawaii and they often go for their anniversary, which happens to be in September. And one year they went in March and, and when I was studying oceanography and, and a lot of things, I, I, I told them about this phenomenon and they thought I was absolutely nuts but when they came back from Hawaii they're like you know we went to our favorite beach um, that we go to you know typically when we go for our anniversary but when we took this trip in March that beach wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> I guess those bars out there they can be destroyed or built up in a matter of hours right so I mean they might well and then you know you add hurricanes which is an area subjected to hurricanes of course that can take out a beach really quick now oh, yeah, nature yeah. can sit back but it can be gone in the day with that strong wave activity. Man, I, I think that would be cool. I want to go, I'm, I need to get photography and actually like, you know, like if you did like a day by day, like a picture, because I know you can do that with like seeing the, uh, the, with the position of the sun in the sky to see the different, I don't even know what I'm saying. <laughs> you can see the sun's position if you take a picture of it every day or at the, if you stand oh, in the same yeah, spot yeah. once at the same time every month, you'll see that it, 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 it goes up and down depending on where you're at as right. you know, the, the tilting of the earth. I guess, yeah, when we're talking about the beaches being destroyed. So I guess, I mean, that would be a good way to talk about into the the, the different types of shores that we actually have. So the, the interface between the, the coast and the beaches where they're, where they're doing it that, that are actually going to, I guess, affect the coastal erosion, right? So there, there are two main types of coastal morphology and then one is going to be dominated by erosion and the other is going to be by deposition. <laughs> and these exhibit distinctly different landforms. You know, they, each type may contain some feature of the other. In general, erosional coasts are those with little or no sediment, whereas depositional coasts are going to be characterized by an abundant of sediment accumulation over the long term. But both temporal and geographic variations may occur in each of these. Yeah. And I think like, so the erosional coasts are like what we like really picturesque, like the, I think of like the white cliffs of Dover and like then along the, uh, like if you drive like highway one in California, that's good. That's what I think. Uh, yeah. 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 Like real steep, like really beautiful stuff. Like even in like the Scandinavian countries, like in Norway and that kind of thing, you'll have erosional features that lead to these really stark high relief areas. Um, but they also are where you can like, so I talked about sea sea cliffs, but like your sea arches, right. Mm -hmm. And your sea stacks, those are caused by long periods of it being this type of coast. So an erosional coast. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Western part of the United States is, is an excellent example of those erosional coasts. And they often tend to be related to plate tectonics, which I know when I first learned that fact was 
kind of interesting, actually. So yeah. <laughs> they tend to switch over time, you know, over long geological periods of time. So eventually that shoreline is going to straighten out and it'll become more depositional over time. So yeah, um, that's not going to happen to the West Coast anytime soon because it's just <laughs> quite active. <laughs> yeah. And the, the type of rock, too, also yeah. is going to play a factor. And I think we see that whenever, whenever I know we talked about uh, plate tectonics, right, Angela? Um, but even when we do our, our, our sand labs, we can see like tectonically active uh, beaches based on the, the rock types, too, right? Right, right. So, you know, and it might, so I don't think I've had a student call me on that yet. You know, by looking at at it, seeing a lot of metamorphic rocks or igneous rocks within grains within those sands, we know that that area is likely active because of of those, uh, the metamorphism from mountain building and Mm -hmm. igneous volcanism that's nearby and that's the sediments that are being delivered there. And like I said, I don't think I've had a student actually call me on that yet, but you know, you might ask, why do we care because you can look up from the coast and you can see mountains, right? You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you um, know what? What if it's a very long period of active, like an active region? So you could have old mountains that then this is right. a reenactment. So maybe that could be an answer. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's like when you're looking in the past, you want to know what happened in the past right. or what, what in the area that that definitely falls. And so if if I'm looking at sediments that were laid down 250 million years ago, I have no idea, you know, if they were close to a mountain or if they are close to a volcano. But if I look at the sediments that, you know, are now a rock, uh, those grains are going to tell me, was there a mountain building event? Was there volcanism nearby? Or what is it just a bunch of quartz sandstone? So then I know there there wasn't really a mountain nearby, so to speak. So that, that does help us a little bit uh, looking in the past. But yeah. You know, again, the present, you look up in Florida, you're not going to see a mountain. Look in Oregon, yeah, you're going to see mountains and volcanoes. So, so yeah. I mean, but could you have, I guess, in, cause you have the Appalachians, right? So they're all being eroded down and I'm sure there's metamorphism that's, that's eroding down. But I guess when, when you think of, I guess the, the white sandy beaches of Florida, by that point, the, all the other types of lithics have kind of eroded out. Yeah. They've all broken down. So they've all either, you know, the active ions, I guess, in the minerals would have dissolved into the water eventually, or it breaks down into clay, or it's been deposited higher upstream. The, the quartz is, yeah. is resilient. Garnet is also really resilient. So is tourmaline. So quartz is so abundant. That's usually what you're going to find in those, those more depositional beaches that aren't close to a mountain. You're likely to see a lot of the quartz. If that's what I find so, amazing. Yeah. So like just based on, we can tell now, like, so with this coastal erosion and all of this, or just like the, the different types of coasts, if you will, we can see just looking, taking a handful of the, the beach, uh, the, that interface between the coast and the, the water, right? Just, we can see like, oh, look, is it, is it more of a, you know, a depositional environment versus a, I guess, more of an erosional, right? Cause when we say like the West coast, like when we think of Oregon, right? Would you think of that as more of a, uh, a depositional coast or an erosional coast? Uh, definitely erosional. Erosional. Yeah. Because, but the context clues are from like the, the types of sediments that we're looking at. Right. Right. Yeah. So, and you could also see like, like if you did have, you know, sandstone cliffs or like, or a limestone type cliff that at one time it was depositional. Right. And now you have, you've seen the changeover to an erosional. <laughs> but, but, mm-hmm. the, but I think that's when we get into like the, when it's being deposited, right? Like the, the first order, second order, third 
yeah. or like kind yeah. of like where we're at. Like if we're just looking at the beach itself, it would be mixed in with a whole bunch of other stuff. I, at least what I would imagine it being like, cause I, I don't think of when I think of like California and all that, like, I don't think of like all oh, these sandy beaches. <laughs> no, like it's no. also that water is really cold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God, I do remember that in California, the water being cold, I've but never, it's just, I've never been to a California beach. It's, but it's cause you have that California current coming down, right? That's, it's bringing all right. that cold water from up North down. So without that California current, California would be, I think they said somewhere like six degrees Fahrenheit hotter. Wow. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. Dude, that, that, that makes no, I mean like that is surprising too with California. And, and I don't, it's, I don't know if like all, I guess are a lot of, Beach setting? No, because I'm not sure because I think, I don't know if it's that, that, that cold water coming in, but I do know like it, it makes the days like not too hot, but then at night it's kind of like chilly. Like even in the summertime, I was taken aback by like how cold it was in California in the evening, in the summertime. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's attributed to the current. So amazing how much they really influence the climate, especially in the, of course, the coastal areas. Yeah, yeah. I guess well, the, some features of our an erosional kill. Uh, cl- uh, <laughs> <laughs> features of an erosional uh, coast, right? So uh, you mentioned sea cliffs. So mm-hmm. when we talk about sea cliffs, these are the most widespread landform of erosional coast are sea cliffs. And these are very steep to vertical bedrock cliff range from only a few meters high to what we see like off the, the, the highway one to, you know, they could be hundreds of meters above sea level. And then their vertical nature is a result of that wave induced erosional near sea level. And then the subsequent collapse of rock at higher elevations and these cliffs that extend to the shoreline commonly have a notch cut into them where the waves have been battered or the waves have battered the bedrock surface is that so is that different than a wave cut platform or is that going to be the same thing no and i was going to just you get i don't know angela if you want to read this <laughs> this one if you're if you're following along with us. sure yeah. well wave cut now with the wave cut cliffs you can have a wave cut platform, but not necessarily. So your, your wave cut platform is formed when you've had that erosional shoreline and then there's either an uplift from tectonics mm-hmm. or had a drastic sea level change that now exposes what was once under the ocean and is now on the surface. So you'll find the wave cut platforms at the base of most of the cliffs along rocky coasts. And usually about mid-tide elevation. Matter of fact, in some areas where, especially if you've had tectonics going on for quite a while, which usually they do, mm-hmm. you may see kind of a stair step where you have a couple of marine uh, wave-cut platforms that have been exposed. So you have that, what we call a marine terrace. Yeah. So again, wave-cut platforms, rugged, you don't have the sediments very rocky below the surface, and then if they get uplifted, then you have the marine terrace. And I think I kind of jumped ahead. Oh, no, 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 that's that's good. (laughs) Um, and, And wouldn't it, like... Say you have a really severely jointed, like a preferred orientation of joints, like on a limestone. So you could, like the waves would preferentially erode along those. You'll have different beds. Is that also yeah. like part of it? Yeah. And yeah. then, so like the wave cut platforms too, what I think of is when you said the marine terraces in the Grand Canyon too, you see that mm-hmm. with uh, with like the, the ancient floodplains, right? And then it kind of cut down. And then you had this floodplain and then it cut down some more. Am I crazy? No, no, that's, that, that would be a similar process. Just, yeah. you know, 
we're talking about rivers doing that. So exactly. Do you have a time where the water level is a little bit higher and it flattens out that land and kind of strips any of the loose sediment? And then you have an uplift or in the case of the Grand Canyon, you have that river down cutting a little bit farther and it leaves that flat land there. But that was actually once covered with water. I don't know. The Grand Canyon. I, I want to do an episode just strictly on the Grand Canyon because that place go just, there and do just fascinates me to <laughs> yeah. no end. Yeah, yeah. But then we come to these interesting things called your sea arches. So this is another spectacular type of erosional landform is the what we would just call the sea arch, which forms as the result of different rates of erosion, typically due to these varied resistance of bedrock. So these archways, they may have arcuate or rectangular shape, and then the opening extending below the water level. And then the height of the arch can be about tens of meters above the sea level. And then it's it's often common to form when the, the rocky coast undergoes erosion and a wave cut platform develops. And then the continued erosion can result in the collapse of the arch. I think what you're talking about with your, you could have that. Sea stacks and yeah, stuff. Yeah, and whatnot. And then it just leaves these isolated uh, sea stacks and platforms. And then still further erosion removes the stack and eventually on the wave cut platform remains adjacent to the eroding coastal cliff itself. And I think these are cool. So yes. you can just think of uh, like this. It's what am I, what am I trying to say? It, the, like the headlands with the refraction, right? And it kind of, it bends towards it. Is that, is that basically how these, the arches are made where you have this piece of land sticking out and then you have the, it's it, it continuously eroding oh, yeah, away. Yeah. And then it, that's how you kind of get that in between the middle of the actual arch. Is that, is that, or is that more due to the differential weathering? I would think of the strength of the rock, depending on like, you might have local areas of weakness. And so um, I would think that would have to do with it more, but also like how the waves, like their orientation and how they hit the rock, I would think like directionally, I think yeah. it all plays into it. Well, you're right. It all plays in that because, uh, you know, oftentimes your, your sea arches, well, they start as a sea cave and it evolves to a sea arch and then when it collapses, it's a sea stack. But often where we see these are, are land that's sticking out farther to the ocean. So, and why is it sticking out farther into the ocean than the mainland? Could be a couple reasons. It could be the type of rock. So maybe you have a little tougher rock that's up there or the land was just a little more shallow to begin with. Um, you know, we're going to talk about estuaries in a little bit, but, you know, perhaps this is a flooded river area. So James had mentioned the wave refraction, that wave, when it hits shallow water, that's going to cause the bottom of the wave to start to slow down. And it actually bends the wave to that wave refraction. So it's forcing that energy into that more shallow water that's picking out a little bit farther. So we see that those rocks that are farther out to the ocean get hit the most. And so therefore, they erode and we start to see these spectacular features form such as the sea arch and then eventually the sea stack and of course over time eventually the waves will take all of that away and it'll be just a straight coastal line but again that's thousands if not millions of years away <laughs> yeah. no and and i and i think that that's one of the, the cooler ones is that that refraction of the waves because yeah. i mean that that's something that people don't really realize either is like it, it shallows around that so it's actually concentrating on that jettied kind of that protrusion of that land and i was and I, that's what i was wondering is it, is it due to that refraction that's causing that i guess that sea arch if you will and then you know i guess when it when you said like whenever that eventually it erodes all the way and it creates that sea stack and then when it connects, 
it becomes what is it? I, I, it's one of those geology words that I don't like. It's the tombolo. Tombolo. Oh, man, yeah, I, yeah. I hate those words. <laughs> I don't like that. And it's one of the words I don't like. We usually have a whole bunch of words that we do like, like viscosity. And yeah, yeah. Why not? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Headlands. Yeah, those, it should be an instrument, not yeah. a <laughs> not, not a depositional <laughs> landform. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we kind of talked about the, like some spectacular stuff in the erosional stuff. Okay. Um, so like, and that's like in your, like what wave dominated coastlines. Yeah. Um, so maybe we could talk about what, well, we could talk about the sandy beaches like what happens there. Okay. Like, so I guess more of a depositional. Yeah. And then like, uh, but I think Angela also mentioned earlier, like it depends on like your seasons too. Right. So your sandy beaches, like, so you'll have the ebb that brings it out. Um, but then the tide will come in and bring all the sediment that got pushed out back onto the beach. So I, it's, I'm curious about that. Cause if you have an active Delta around the area, then you also have sediment supply. So how does that, how would that affect like nearby beaches, right? Cause you'll, you should have beaches near the deltas as well. Right. Right. So if you have a, if you have a strong delta that, that has a lot of sediment getting fed from, from that river, you should also see a buildup of those beaches. But that, that's going to vary as well, not only with seasonal effects, if you have some strong seasonal effects, but also with your sea level change. So in, in river flows, let's, let's take a look at the, the Mississippi. So the Mississippi dumps into Louisiana. And we've seen not only has the Mississippi River moved, but the volume of water that is delivered and therefore the volume of sediment that's delivered out into the Gulf of Mexico varies with that as well. So some seasons we have really strong spring flooding. So that brings in a lot of extra fresh water, which is going to influence the estuaries. We can talk about that mm -hmm. a little bit later. But it's also going to affect the amount of sediment because with more water, that's more flooding, that's more sediment that's going to be dragged into there. So that actually should increase some of the land mass eventually. However, sea level rise can counteract that. So, but can't, uh, I was going to say like, even with the Mississippi river Delta, like the, the Mississippi Delta, right. It's due to the human interactions and messing kind of with the, the flow of it. Isn't it actually like retreating? It's not prograding. It's a, uh, it's actually like moving inwards. That's right. Yeah. We, we love our coast. What can I say? As humans, <laughs> I think we like to go to the beach. We like to be able to look out and see the water. And unfortunately that has led to an uptick a lot of building in these areas. So yeah. the marshes and the wetlands that, that normally, you know, or should be there, they're getting filled in to, to build, you know, resorts and homes and, and other items. But unfortunately, those, those wetlands, or I shouldn't say unfortunately, unfortunately, the building has destroyed the wetlands. Those wetlands really serve a purpose. So you're cutting off that sediment supply when you're filling in these wetlands and estuaries. And so what you end up doing is pretty much shooting yourself in the foot because <laughs> <laughs> that's trying to lead to loss of sediment delivered that's forming those beaches. Yeah. And I think this is something that, well, we, we understand now, but I want to say when we first started building the coast, we didn't really completely understand how much influence we could have on that overall sediment flow. And then, you know, don't even get me started on building dams. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's, those a are necessary given our 
population, yeah. but we have really messed up the sediment supply when it comes to the coastal areas with building dams. Yeah, and that's more of the line of work I'm in is like monitoring those. And we have like, you'll have <clears throat> a lot of sedimentation that'll build up against oh, the dam and they'll just remove all that sediment and go dump it somewhere where normally you wouldn't have this dam in the way and it would flow out to sea. Yeah. Um, that can also happen like if you have flooding that normally would take stuff like on the Mississippi out to the Gulf after the flood and our infrastructure, they'll remove that sediment as well because they don't want the ground to get too saturated on both sides. And so you're not, you're messing with the natural flow of things Yeah. because like you said, we've built up so much. Everyone wants river or <laughs> beachfront property and that that's really like not only just affecting coastal building um, or of like deltas and stuff, but even locally, the biome is affected by that. I just may be off topic, but when you're building dams like upstream too, you're also messing with like the, the base level, right? Too, where like, yeah, I mean, anytime you build a dam, you affect so much. So like you can increase erosion in other parts of of areas that then like you you'll have down cutting along other areas and that's yeah like, because you're changing that right the, yeah. it changes everything <laughs> fish like how fish interact everything oh my god speaking of dams and all of this did y'all see the i guess it was in northern india and in the himalayas that that glacier not the it was a glacier avalanche that came through oh, and it busted through the the dam in that area did y'all see yeah. any of it, footage of that i don't think i saw that no oh my goodness wow see that that was horrific you know in a ge as a geologist it's like fascinating but as a human it's horrific <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you're like my god that is that is amazing like you see like so if you see if you see if you see satellite images, you see this glacier like up in in the in the Himalayas, right? And then afterwards, you just see the glaciers kind of not there anymore, but you can see <laughs> no. the the deposition of all this. Uh, uh, but it broke through a dam yeah, that I they mean, were building, and there were people inside, like. Uh, Oh, working in like the working, power. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, trying, cause I think it's, oh my goodness. Yeah. That's so terrifying. The, <laughs> water messes, I mean like frozen or <laughs> yeah. like, right. It messes with, I don't even know what I'm saying, but it was, it was, I, I saw that and I was just like, oh my God, that was, yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad you saw it. I wasn't the only one. Cause usually it would be Brian just being like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So depositional coasts. So that's kind of like where we're going. So, yeah. So I think uh, when we talk about depositional coasts, we can uh, many, we may experience erosion at certain times and places due to such factors as storms that we talked, depletion of the sediments and rising sea level. But the latter is continuing problem as the mean annual temperature of the earth rises and the ice caps melt. Nevertheless, the overall long range tendencies along the coast is that of sediment deposition. So we are going to get your, your seasonal erosion but the overall trend, like we said. So all the processes discussed at the beginning of the section are evidence along depositional coasts. So waves, wave-generated currents, and tides significantly influence the development and depositional landforms. In general, waves exert energy that is distributed along the coast, essentially parallel to it. And this is accomplished by waves themselves as they strike the shore and also by the longshore current that move it along. And I know we kind of talked about this the, the last time we actually had you on, Angela, with all this. So in contrast, tides tend to exert their influence perpendicular to the coast as they flood and ebb, and then the result, uh, the landforms that develop along 
along some of the coast are due primarily to the wave processes, while along other coasts, they may be due to mainly tidal processes. And we'll get into uh, kind of like the interactions when we get into estuaries too. Yeah. So, oh, go ahead, Angel. Oh, I'm supposed to green. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, so, so a wave dominated coast is one it's characterized by well-developed sandy beaches and they're going to be formed on the long barrier islands with few widely spaced, what we call tidal inlets in that, that barrier island, it's going to be narrow and it's not going to be very tall. It's relatively low in elevation. Longshore transport port is extensive. Transport. 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 Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, and the the inlets are often really small and they're unstable. And so the people like to put jetties. They place them along these inlet mouths to stabilize them and they to keep them open so that boats and barges and all that stuff can get in. Like in Texas and North Carolina, they're really good examples of this. Then I guess we could talk tide dominated coasts. They're not going to be as widespread as those dominated by waves and they tend to develop where tidal range is high or where the wave energy is low. The result would be a coastal morphology that's dominated by like a funnel-shaped embayment and long sediment bodies. And so they're essentially perpendicular to the overall coastal trend. Tidal flats, salt marshes, and tidal creeks are going to be extensive. What about cobalt? (laughs) Cobalt. (laughs) Speaking of cobalt, the West German coast. That is me. (laughs) Of the North Sea is is a really good example. Uh, Angela, you, I don't know if you heard, I don't even remember what episode that was. It it was, oh, the the cobalt, the cobalt episode. Yeah, no, Coney Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we talked about, so there was, we did this one episode where we talked about just kind of the unintended consequences of renew, or I guess more of the, it was lithium ion batteries. Actually, it we yeah. talked forever about it, but yeah. how, how they got the, the word cobalt or the name of that mineral was they thought it was a goblin <laughs> in the mountains because yeah. whenever they were trying to extract silver, it, the cobalt would mix with uh, mercury and uh, it made like cyanide, mercury, cyanide <laughs> yeah. gas. And they thought it was this um, this mythical creature called Cobald, and then that's what that voice is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Cobald. Sorry, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, no. Yeah, so those are those are like your wave and tide dominated coast. Yeah, and so I bet you wonder know how we can monitor it, right, Brian? Yes, I do. <laughs> I really do. do. You want to know how we monitor it, Angela? This was I thought this was I thought this was really one of the the, the cooler parts of that. Like uh, the when we do our digging, trying to do this is there was this 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 case study, right? So they were up in Alaska monitoring the coastal erosion and the. One one way that they they started measuring the I guess the the geomorphology of it all is through topographic maps and moderate resolution satellite data that can be used effectively to monitor short term change in shoreline and coastal plain geomorphology. So we saw they saw such observations may contribute to an enhanced understanding of recent and ongoing geological processes and may provide a foundation to anticipate future changes in dynamic settings. So as we go through with all all the uh, the global warming and possible influences is kind of I would say an important place to start, right? So yeah. what they did is a team of geologists did a study near the Beaufort Sea in Alaska, and I wanted to ask you: Is that do you do you know is that the same Beaufort that do, that had the scale named after him, Beaufort? Honestly, I 
do not know, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, because I mean, like, I, when I think of Alaska, I think of like, what is it, the the crab show or all the the oh, crazy yeah, yeah, yeah. waves? But you have the Beaufort scale, how they measure like oh, the the different okay. levels of waves and all yeah. of that. <laughs> I sound so crazy. scientific. Uh, waves, they, they measure <laughs> waves. <laughs> One yeah, through ten, twelve. <laughs> but in this, you find yourself when you see pictures of the oceans, you find yourself trying to guess on the Beaufort scale. I uh, yeah, no. So, like yeah. every time, when I whenever I'm driving on eight twenty and I cross over, what is it? I think uh, is it? It's not. It's Lake Worth. Yeah. yeah every yeah. time I go over Lake Worth, I see like the white caps, and I'm like, oh, is that a six? Is that a four or five? <laughs> Great. Every now time I'm gonna have to look this. Yeah, up look and- up the Beaufort. Oh, I, I have a a paper here that I'll let you. Okay. See. Cool. But yeah, so like, so <laughs> I do it all the time. I'm sure you do too, right? It's just like you see waves and you're like, yeah. huh, I wonder what this is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Last time I went to Galveston, I was like, there, there was a storm kind of out there and the waves were coming. I was like, oh, wow, those are pretty white out there. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, what's your story about fetch, Brian? <laughs> About fetch? Yeah. <laughs> you're just trying to do fetch of a storm. You're talking about with the geologist and you're like the, you're, Okay, never mind. I don't remember this. <laughs> yeah, you were talking about like the fetch. You were trying to calculate the fetch of a storm. Oh my god. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Anyways, I was like, so, was that my old fashioned episode? I don't know. It could have been. <laughs> this is turning into mine. So, <laughs> so yeah. So the Beaufort Sea in Alaska to document rates of coastal land loss during the past fifty years and describe the influence of coastal erosion on thermokarst lake evolution using Landsat thematic mapper short wave infrared and topographic map data in hopes to contribute (laughs) an enhanced understanding of the dynamic and interactive processes that shape the landscape. Okay, so basically what they did, you had these geologists, there was a 2,000 square kilometer coastal plain north of the Tshekpuk Lake that has 130 kilometers of coastline. And the study is bordered to the east by Harrison Bay to the west of Bay, blah, blah, blah. It's this area that they were doing the study on. Yeah, so the coastal plain sediment it was deposited during the quaternary sea level high stands. It includes narrow, low-relief sandy beach ridges separated by broader areas of low-lying silty and muddy marine deposits. Much of the coastal plain is then covered by this thermokarst depressions, and they contain a thin veneer of mostly muddy lake deposits underlain by either sandy beach ridge or silty muddy marine deposits. What was that story you were telling about Angela about the uh, the loss of lakes earlier? Oh yeah, um, I had come across an article recently that was talking about permafrost loss, and you know we were discussing this before we went on on the air. Sometimes we don't really understand the the really big picture with with the climate change, and you know we, we talk about sea levels going to rise, people are going to be displaced, but there's so much more to to climate change. So taking <laughs> The permafrost, for example, melting. It was estimated by some researchers in, in Yale, from Yale, that have been researching this, that the Canadian Arctic is likely to lose somewhere between 15,000 to 45,000. This is thousand lakes God. in the River Delta. They will dry up because of the loss of permafrost. That land is going to sink. That water is going to drain out. Yeah. It's going to go out the ocean. This is fresh water that's going to be lost to us and, and you know, wildlife in the area for 
forever because of this warming up. And it's, you know, just, again, one of those things we don't really think about completely in climate change, but it is definitely going to become our reality, unfortunately. Uh, I, yeah, and, and that, that number is staggering, too. And I don't think people... <laughs> Like yeah. 50,000 or up to, you said almost 50,000 lakes could be lost due to this man. I, that, it, it, that blows my mind. Yeah. And like you, so you think like, okay, well the communities around there would have to leave, but I know like at least here, like in Texas, which I assume, and I, I shouldn't do this, but I do assume that like, since like, uh, we will draw water even from East Texas to help out Dallas because of the water supply problem. Think about like right. re regionally, not just locals in like the, that's that city or town that's nearby these, whatever lake you could have like right. 10 cities that have to relocate because they don't have fresh water anymore. Yeah. So it's not, it's not just a small, what seemingly would be a small group of people. It, it could be a whole area of a country. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and like James was mentioning, the, the collapse of that, that lake in the, in, in, in the Himalayas, oh, that, yeah. that was supply. That, the, the people that live, you know, below in the valleys in the Himalayas, they depend on those, that glacial ice for fresh water. That's where the rivers are running from is that melting glacial ice. So when you lose such a large amount, you can't get that back. It's gone now. Yeah. So <laughs> that's just part of the struggles that we're starting to see that, that people are going to have to compromise. But I mean, you know, yeah, like you say, we, we here in Dallas-Fort Worth may get water from East Texas, but there's going to be a point where that line is going to be drawn, where we're no longer going to be able to do that, you know, borrow water or places are going to start cutting us off. I mean, what if Colorado River is a good example? That's a good case study because that's been dammed up to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. um, Colorado River is supposed to drain into the Gulf of Mexico and actually enter Mexico for a while, it wasn't because we were restricting that water. Looking in the future, and I know this is kind of off oceanography, but what happens if Colorado, you know, the state of Colorado decides the Colorado River is all theirs and they don't <laughs> allow it to flow any farther south? Then, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, you know, is that going to happen someday? Are we going to get that desperate when things start drying up? I mean, it could, but then the long-term implications of that is like all the water that it supplies along the way. Golly. Right. Or if they're just like, hey, well, we were just going to make money off of it, so we'll we'll pay you for this water. I mean, you can pay <laughs> us for this water. Just like kind of how like Jerry Jones made all of that money from oh, yeah. us borrowing, uh, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Good. So in one of my, my classes, we discussed water rights because Texas kind of plays around with privatizing our water. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. That's a horrible idea. <laughs> the, the privatization of everything is just yeah. Uh, well, like yeah. So we'll have the so the lakes that my agency runs will have like X amount volume of water, uh, like a flood, like a just a conservation stage, and so that's yeah. that's for the lake conservation. But then different municipalities pay for X amount of feet of elevation above that. And they, oh, yeah. they will then like, that's what their water source is. And so like, then they'll be like, Hey, you need to raise the, like how much water you keep in the lake. Well, it's a man-made dam. 
So if we raise the the head, yeah. then we're putting pressure on the dam itself, causing it to maybe fail or whatever. So it's we're going to end up getting to these dangerous <laughs> levels eventually. Yeah. Um, well, I paid for this up to this mount, so yeah. you need to have it up here. Or then the, they're like, well, but we don't want to get taxed so that you can make improvements to the dam, <laughs> whatever. So, yeah. <laughs> don't tax yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the problem, I think, with the whole, you know, liberalistic kind of like idea of everything is you everything's like it's through an economic lens whenever some of these issues should be really like right through a different lens to be viewing these things through like hey everyone should be have access to free drinkable water like why is (laughs) like let's you're gonna pay all this money Yeah, well, you're right, you know, and we're obviously not going to solve all those problems, but it does boil down to money. I I always like to, you know, in in our class, we talk a little bit about the hydrology. I like to do the well scenario. You got two farmers, farmer A and farmer B, and farmer B decides to put in a super sized well and ends up, you know, drying everybody (laughs) else's well around them because of that cone of depression. Yeah. And it's like, oh. who's right and wrong here? Now all the other farmers have to pay for a new well to drill deeper because this farmer put in a bigger well. And, you know, people think, well, that doesn't affect me. Well, it does because this is where your crops are coming from. And then what what also you don't think about that too is that that cone of depression, you're changing the way that that water flows. So where you can be contaminating uh, with septic tanks with poo-poo water, now you're giving, (laughs) you're, you're, you're passing and like, you, like you're being shitty to your neighbor. Yeah, like, I was and, say, so like, to speak. chemically, oh, shitty to your neighbor. Oh my God. Like, just like, okay, if this is what you're going to do, well then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> but yeah, so like, and even like, if you did have to go deeper in another formation, you're pulling out water with different chemistry that could affect your, whatever crops you're like, you're, you then like may have like a domino effect of bad news for whatever you're using. So yeah, it's just a mess, but yeah. Back to the ocean in areas closer to the ocean. That is a problem because sometimes they will dig that well and they will start sucking in that ocean water and then (laughs) it's, you know, it's ruined. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, and Um, and then I think what, what do they have those recharging stations? Is that what they're called? What are they called? Uh, where you have all that water that flows in to kind of like prevent that. Oh, like the Edwards recharge zone. Is that what no, you're talking about? No, the, at the, at the shorelines oh. to prevent that from, I don't know. I, I, they've tried to uh, resolve that, but yeah, it can yeah. happen when you do have too much coming in. Yeah. Right. Or, or right. taking yeah, too much out. That ocean will come in and fill that gap. You know, it, it's, it's flowing through the rocks. Yeah. So, yeah, you can end up ruining an entire aquifer if you drain it down too much and the ocean is able to, you know, penetrate that. So that it, it happens. Unfortunately, so man, um, I, I, I love these tangents. Yeah, <laughs> it, it makes it makes it makes the world go round. <laughs> but yeah, so back to that. I guess the to close out the the other thing. So that that whole area that up in Alaska that we were talking about, how they're monitoring it through satellites. It's 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 mantled by tundra that includes sedges, lichens, mosses, and dwarf willows. Blah 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 blah. But permafrost. Pro- oh my goodness, what was that? Permafrost. <laughs> permafrost is typically. Uh, it's going to be greater than 250 meters thick, which extends to within the, the 30 to 50 centimeters of the surface and comprises
sizes as much as 75% ice. And then within it, it you had that 25% sediment in the upper five meters. Um, an earlier study, it used the National Ocean Survey charts. It demonstrated that the area did have some of the highest rates of coastal erosion in the region. And it exceeded like 20 meters a year. Like, yeah, per year. That's <laughs> that's what that minus one. Yeah, I was like, what? That just means division. Yeah. But it's like, that's insane. Like that amount of erosion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought you were talking about the, the symbol no, I used. No. <laughs> no, I was just like thinking like that amount per year. That's insane. Yeah. Like that. So, um, so that shoreline would repeat, retreat that much in a calendar year. And although like prevailing wind direction along the coast is from the northeast, westerly winds associated with the major storms contribute significantly to coastal erosion. Like the tidal range is less than one meter. That shoreline consists primarily of two to six meter high permafrost bluffs. And the primary process of coastal erosion is wave undercutting and permafrost block collapse. Beaches are absent or poorly developed along most of the study area coast because of the predominance of permafrost comprising muddy coastal plain sediment. Yeah, so I think that we can conclude from all that that the wave energy is dissipated on the permafrost bluffs. And what we're talking about earlier is that it's being undercut and then it's going to fall directly into the sea, right? So it's eroding it away. So mud-rich permafrost blocks rapidly melt in the seawater due to that convection heat loss and wave action suspends and transports muddy sediment offshore. And then the similar erosion processes have been described at Herschel Island in Canada. And then sandy beaches, barrier islands, and spits are locally present where sand-rich permafrost bluffs are exposed at the shoreline. And thus, sandy beaches protect the permafrost bluffs from this wave action. And then previous researchers have found that coastal plain sediment type was the primary control on rates of coastal erosion. And then the average erosion rates were 5.4 to 1.4 meters per year were estimated in areas of permafrost comprising of muddy deposits and sandy to gravelly deposits respectively. But so, I mean, I think it's it's interesting to see how they're actually measuring. So basically what they're doing is they're taking the satellite images and then they're taking it. And I know they've done it um, in other places as well to kind of measure what's going on. But I feel like yeah. before we go any further, we should do a little bit of... Stories by Brian. Nope, wrong. Like, I'm, on the, I'm on the wrong. I'm on the wrong. Uh, here we are. Mineral. Mineral minutes. Mineral. Mineral. Minerals. Mineral minutes. <laughs> Minerals. <laughs> All right. So today's mineral minute is brought to you by the calcium magnesium fluoride silicate fluorotrimolite. <laughs> Fluorotrimolite's chemical formula is CA2MG5SI8O22F2. This mineral is named for its chemical relationship to tremolite following the nomenclature for the amplable supergroup. Fluorotrimolite is biaxially positive <laughs> with a 2V <laughs> angle of 85 degrees measured and 82 degrees calculated. Fluorotrimolite occurs as prismatic light greenish <laughs> colorless <laughs> crystals. <laughs> 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 Forming gray to whitish green aggregates. It is a, it is a great streak to vitri- vitreous luster. <laughs> I purposely was a dick to you. Yeah, you okay, were. so the crystal fluorotrimolite are transparent and do not fluoresce under UV light. <laughs> for holotype fluorotrimolite and for the other 
crystals reported in this work. <laughs> Single crystal diffraction data were collected on the theta range 2 to 30 degrees with Phillips PW1100 <laughs> diffractometer working with graphite monochromatized Mo K alpha X radiation. Lambda equals 0. 0.7107 angstrom. I'm surprised. Yeah. Yeah, good. I do. Yeah. Okay. Unit cells, para unit cell parameters were calculated by a least squares procedure using the, using the D values measured for reflections belonging to 60 selected rows of reciprocal space and occurring in the theta range, negative 30 to 30 degrees. <laughs> wow. Well, as expected for Ampable, the A-Catons preferentially order a beach, some site where columbic interactions with this fluoride are stronger. Yeah, while it still lacks a complete mineral description, fluorotrimolite was identified in a specimen from the Limecrest South Down Quarry, Sparta, New Jersey, USA, which was provided by the Franklin Mineral Museum. Stay tuned for next week's mineral fluorocarnite. Mineral. Can't wait. <laughs> mineral minutes. Oh my goodness. Mineral. Yeah. So yeah, that was wow. a song that I did in front of uh, my 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 teacher and my my classmate. Oh wow, man, that makes me giggle so much. All right, so I have I have a question for everybody. We can't we can we're already at hour nineteen, so oh I don't my. know how we. Do you feel like we've done enough? Do you want to? We don't have to talk about estuaries. I feel like we could talk we could talk about estuaries, but it. I mean, we could, we could do estuaries another time. I mean, we could keep going if you want to divide it up in two, because we kind of mentioned we were going to talk about it, but yeah. we've talking for quite a while. Yeah, no, that's what I was saying <laughs> yeah. is so, would, I mean, would you be okay to doing another episode with us? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. Yeah, that'll work. Considering how much we talked about yeah. everything else, if we go into estuaries, I think we'll be here another 40 minutes. Yeah. I know, I know. I'd, I'd, we'd probably be here for another hour. This is like another like hour and a half worth of stuff. It's yeah. Yeah, I think I think that would be good. This is a good place to kind of just reset. I know it's been a long week for all of us trying to get back into the things. So, well then, well thanks again. And then, um, I guess we shall do it again in maybe like a, a week's time, and it'll give me time to upload this and get it out to everybody. Yeah, and then uh, we'll touch base and finish up with estuaries. So I guess until then, everyone uh, out there listening, thanks for listening. Uh, be cool. Stay tuned. And keep it on the rocks. Rock. <laughs> <laughs>where all of these episodes like good intentions were like oh it's gonna be an hour no big deal no, no way it's always <laughs> <laughs> always two hours always